from Relay FM. This is Download, recorded December 20th, 2018. This is episode 84. Shout out to our nemeses. Welcome back to Download, a weekly look at the most interesting stories in the world of technology and other stuff you care about. I'm Jason Snell, your host, and I'm joined this week by two wonderful guests who have podcasts here on Relay FM. Hmm, funny how that worked. Uh, Aline Sims is the founder of App Launch Map, the co-host of Originality, and the co-executive director of App Camp for Girls as of today. Congratulations. Yeah. Hello. Yay. Thanks. Hi. Thanks for having me on the show. I got to introduce you with your new thing. Ha ha. That was, that I know, was you're the first. That was excellent. Excellent. Also, video game developer extraordinaire and co-host of Remaster here on Relay FM, Shahid Kamal Ahmad. Hello. Hello. You get to collect to be here. The, the, the podcast sounds much better better and more thoughtful when you're here so thank you for bringing yourself um what can i say to that it's uh some of it is your brain and some of it is your accent and just it's a double threat uh all right we'll get down to it Stephen hackett's not here uh he is on assignment but he helped put the show together which was great and we're going to talk about what we think are the most interesting stories of this week things are a little quiet it is uh getting into the holiday season but guess what it's still 2018 which means social media companies being terrible is still topic number one Uh, This week, the New York Times published an explosive piece outlining data privacy exceptions Facebook was making for its partners. Through hundreds of pages of internal documents and interviews with about 50 former Facebook employees and corporate partners, the paper paints the image of a company that allowed others to have access to its users' data without the user's consent or knowledge. Other tech companies, as well as large retailers, including, let's see, Microsoft, Amazon, Netflix, Spotify, had access potentially to profile data from uh, private messages to information about friends. The article is unclear about how the Facebook app interacted with data stored on users' phones, but the iPhone's controls around calendar and contact information uh, is at least called into question. Uh, Facebook, of course, says that everybody was able to opt into this and everything is fine. Uh, Of course they do. This also raises questions about whether Facebook broke its 2011 consent agreement with the Federal Trade Commission that barred it from sharing user data without permission. Uh, While most of the agreements covered in the article have ended. Facebook cannot say if that stored data was deleted properly or shared further. Facebook was also supposed to audit how partners were using user data, something the company has failed to do in any comprehensive way. And even if, I would say, they followed the letter of the law in terms of, as they've claimed, in terms of asking permission, I do think that fundamentally stuff like uh, that reading your private messages, there's kind of an implication that private messages are private, and yet somehow... Uh, companies were being being given access to private messages. So what a mess this is. Uh, look, this is our last regular episode of the year. Maybe it's worth taking stock of uh, this. This has been the year where Facebook in particular, uh, social media companies and even tech in general have really kind of uh, the story, the narrative has changed. And I want to ask each of you, how, how are you feeling about social media in general and Facebook in particular? And have you taken steps this year to change uh, the way you use these things. Aline, what do you think? Uh, what? Uh, like, I'm not surprised. I don't ever want to give the implication or the impression that I'm surprised by what Facebook has done here. But, you know, geez. So 
I've tried some things. Um, I'm also not thrilled with Twitter. I mean, we know Facebook is kind of a trash fire. Uh, Twitter is also a trash fire. Um, I've tried uh, micro.blog where I'm still kind of apt- active. I was pretty active on Mastodon for a while as kind of a Twitter replacement. And I keep coming back to Twitter because that's still where the people are. Uh, it's the same reason I don't leave Facebook. That's how I stay in touch with with people. And then now, especially in my position at AppCamp, um, it's a fundraising platform for us too. And I need to be there because I'm kind of in charge of making sure everything goes smoothly and according to plan. So it's hard. It's rough. We need other social media networks and they're out there trying, but getting critical mass is so incredibly difficult. And I don't know what it's going to take. Like, um, Facebook is never this this disregard for users is fundamental to who Facebook is. And I think those of us in the tech sphere have been kind of cognizant of that for a while. There is no turning Facebook around. It's just imbued with a magical spell or something as the fabric was being made for Facebook. And so, yeah, like we can all leave, but then where do we go to? There's still a lot of value in social networks. There's a reason people like them so much. And I don't know what the answer is here. I've struggled with this myself pretty much all of 2018 is for me personally, for me professionally, and now for me in this position um, at App Camp for Girls, how do I handle all of this? What What is my ethical obligation? And um, what do I need to do to make sure that the world is aware of me and uh, the, the products and people I help? I don't know. This is just the end product of globalization. Regardless of the technology that's going to be used to reach some kind of critical mass, and let's say we're talking about the internet, which we are, it could be any technology, either existing or in some parallel universe, then to reach that critical mass requires a vast amount of capital. If anyone's ever seen pictures of the server rooms of well, server room, server warehouses of some of these large companies, they're impressive. And that requires a lot of capital. And to service all of these technologies requires huge reserves of capital. And as soon as huge reserves of capital come into the equation, interests come in. And those interests can also be government and military. I don't know if you saw uh, a story today about Google. But Google are incredibly involved with the U.S. intelligence services and U.S. military. And in the U.K., we have an issue where Russia today has been taken to task by our broadcast regulator, Ofcom, for promoting its stories that are obviously going to present uh, a Russian perspective on global events at the top of everybody's Twitter streams. Now, Russia Today claimed that they have been very forthright, that they are presenting the Russian view to counter the British view and so on. And Google, of course, will say, well, look, we do have an interest in these areas and it will result all of this technology and cooperation with the security services, intelligence services will allow us to save lives. You know, they point to forest fires and school shootings as evidence of this. And of course, this kind of begs the question, where is the end 
point for all of this? Where is the omega point? Is it one huge global organization that covers just about everyone and everything? Well, the closest we've got to that right now comes in the form of Facebook and Google. And so then it becomes much more a philosophical and political question. And I don't know if we have time to go over that, so I won't. But (laughs) what I will say is that from a personal perspective, that for years now, I've seen this coming. So have many people. I don't claim to be unique in this regard. And as a result, have decided to massively moderate anything that I say online. I treat any message on the internet as if my worst enemy could read it. And that's probably a good um, good approach to use for just about any kind of communication. Imagine your worst enemy seeing this, and I'm sure I've got plenty of those. And you know, how, how would they use this against you? And you know what happens is that at the end of that process, you end up saying very little, and you certainly aren't a dissident. You certainly aren't in any way representing any kind of opposition to the dominant paradigm because then you become an enemy of this enormous company so it's really dark where we are you know let's not underplay this because we could underplay it very easily and i think it's almost impossible to overplay the danger uh that that we are now in i mean in terms of freedom we have very little of it when you've got agent government agencies secret services Across the board, not just the US, I'm not going to blame the US for this. The US has got to protect its interests. And although Russia is supposedly on the other side, what do you think they're going to do? Not protect their interests? And of course, now we have uh, China, Russia, the US involved in cyber war. And guess who suffers? We do. We use these services and our details are exposed, not just our private conversations, but our credit card details are regularly leaked, our uh, email addresses, our home addresses, our connections to all of our friends. These companies, services, governments now know more about us than we ever will. We have Eric Schmidt a few years ago talking about how they'll soon be able to predict exactly what we're going to say next. And you know what? They probably can. I've been using yeah. Skype recently and looking at the default answers and thinking, you know what? That's where I'll end up if I'm not conscious about what, I'm, what I want to think, mm-hmm. what I want to say. So, yeah, dark place. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't be more optimistic. We're going to need um, more puppies in the fuzzy puppy update yeah, at the are. end of this one. Um, I also I, I like your idea. All the puppies. I like your idea that our own worst enemies are listening. Shout out to our nemeses. Hello. Thanks for listening again. <laughs> Thanks for hate listening, I guess, right? That, that's what they're doing, almost certainly right now. Um, I was thinking, you, you mentioned the scale of this, and, and that's something that struck me, because um, when you talk about the investment in, in capital required to run a worldwide, especially technology company, uh, and, or a social media platform, or whatever it is, I was thinking it's almost like industrial farming, um, or you know, whether it's industrial agricultural stuff, or it's, it's industrial, uh, you know, meat, things like that, where it's like this in massive scale. And I thought, oh, great. Uh, we're the, the the meat in that scenario, we are. right? Where it's just like everything's at such a scale that everything gets reduced. And even if you say, well, it's all anonymized and all that, everything is reduced, every, everything is tracked, everything is perfected and, and then uh, made as efficient as possible. And part of the reason that drives that there is that in the end, the, these are enormous companies that are, are just looking at... Uh, 
ways to optimize for for profit. And I guess my my only hope in all this is that there is a natural lag, and we've talked about it on the show before, between how governments and laws. Um, handle technology developments that that in the early days of the internet the idea was well we don't want to break this so let's keep our hands off of it for a while and so there's an opportunity here for uh, regulatory agencies to step step in at least to a certain degree and say there are lines that you can't cross there are uh, you know there's data sharing you can't do there are rights that users have that need to be followed and that might work. We've definitely seen in Europe with GDPR at least an attempt to address some of those issues. Of course, uh, you know, some of these attempts to address those issues lead to things like YouTube saying we're going to turn off YouTube in Europe if you force us to patrol copyrights and things like that. So there, there's going to be a lot of, of friction there. And of course, there's lobbying and money and who's got the money? These big companies. So we'll we'll have to... I, I'm not saying I'm super optimistic about it, but certainly we, we seem to... Uh, the stuff that came out this year seems to be uh, a product of a bunch of companies whose cultures were built up in a time when they didn't have to worry about anybody paying attention to what they're doing. And if there was an, a bright side to this year and this issue, it may be that people are paying attention to what they're doing now. At, at least we've gotten to that point where we understand something about the business models of these companies and the practices of these companies. And it may not change. It may change. But at least we've moved past the ignorance that we uh, that most people and our society as a whole lived in before. Yeah. And also, I think the next the next step in what we need to be thinking about is the business relationships that these companies had, because it wasn't Facebook operating in a vacuum, at least not in the specific instance. It was Facebook selling data to other companies who presumably solicited it, or at the very least were approached by Facebook with someone saying, hey, we have all this data. Do you want it? And they were like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. So I think that there's that's also part of the broader conversation that I'm not seeing as much as this news is breaking. Um, but it's something that we definitely need to start thinking about. Like, hey, Microsoft, what you doing over there? You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's not great. It's not great. Um will i feel like this is the story of our time right is is in many ways is this stuff about how the internet you throw everything into how the internet and social media has totally affected our personal connections our relationship with uh with news and information and propaganda uh how you know companies use our data it's all just kind of that's that's what's happening right now and better that than it like i said than it'd be nothing but it doesn't necessarily mean that anything's going to change and and i guess that's on the to-do list for 2019 mm. uh let's, easy yeah oh yeah we'll solve it we'll solve it in 2019 it's fine uh let's take a break let me tell you about our sponsor this week this episode of download is brought to you by pingdom uh, while you've been listening to this podcast, how would you know if your website had gone down? Would you know if your customers couldn't click the buy now button or access your content? You might stumble across the problem by luck, but you know, that's no good. You need a system. You need to be right. You need to know immediately. And uh, that means you need Pingdom. Pingdom lets you know the moment your site goes down in whatever way is best for you. And they're smart. They'll get information that you need to solve the issue to whoever needs it to solve the issue. You, you know, oh, this went down. I'm going to ping this person. Or this went down. I'm going to ping the whole team. Like you set it up. They will get that information immediately to whoever needs it. Pingdom is dedicated to making the web faster and more reliable. They have more than 70 global test servers that emulate visits to your site. Checking its availability as often as every minute. All Pingdom needs is your URL 
They take care of the rest. Don't risk being the last person to know that part of your site is broken. That's bad. Start monitoring it today by going to pingdom.com slash RelayFM. You can get a 14-day free trial, no credit card required. And if something breaks on your site in the next 14 days, guess what? Pingdom will tell you about it. And then you'll know. So when you sign up, use the code DOWNLOAD to check out. You'll get 30% off your first invoice, and they'll know that you came from this podcast. Thank you to Pingdom for supporting Download and all of Relay FM. Let's pivot. Can we pivot? Let's pivot. Two, because tech companies do it, why can't we? Uh, from Facebook to media companies. So here's another corner of the world that we've been talking about a lot this year. Um, Disney is preparing its over-the-top streaming service. Reports say AT&T is as well. It's going to pull contents from content from DC Comics, the Harry Potter franchise, and a whole lot more because AT&T now owns Warner Media, the which is most of what we used to think of as as Time Warner. Uh, not all of it, but the the Warner Brothers part of it. Uh, net neutrality is being stripped away here in the U.S. There are concerns that services like this from companies that are also internet providers uh, could lead to all sorts of issues involving zero rating, for example, where your streaming of media from their service is uh, free and doesn't count against your data cap, while other uh, competitors would have their data count or perhaps using uh, a lack of net neutrality. Uh, Their stuff could be faster and the competitor's stuff could be slower. Um, It's already actually in place for AT&T's DirecTV Now, uh, T-Mobile zero rating a bunch of stuff for its content partners. Uh, And on the other side of the coin, ISPs can charge the likes of Netflix and Apple for the massive amounts of data that they're pushing across their networks. So there is, uh, you know, this is is one of the things that is definitely being uh, talked about right now is you've got AT&T, you know, which does... You know, it, which is a provider of internet access now uh, owning a major entertainment platform and launching a new streaming service. Uh, what what do you feel about this idea of having these uh, kind of uh, vertically integrated companies that are providing your data and then they're providing the video that you watch with the data? Uh, Shahid, I know it's the situation is a little different in the UK, but this is this seems to be an issue that's going to be coming up everywhere. It's an issue of control, really. I'm trying to imagine what it would be like here if, say, an organisation like the BBC charged a licence fee that meant that if you wanted to watch any live TV, whether it was from the BBC or not, you'd have to pay the licence fee. Oh, wait, that's exactly what we do. Hmm. So it's, it's a conundrum and I don't like it. It, it stinks. But... Any organization, any media company that wants to control its content and also happens to have a platform through which it can pipe that content, it's going to want to exercise that control. It's the nature of capital that it wants to maximize its monopoly. So it's not unusual. It's not unexpected. And this is precisely why we have regulations. And so it saddens me that um, net neutrality hasn't been protected, is not guaranteed. I, I thought things were going well, but uh, but clearly not. It's, it, it's only going to lead to second-class consumption. It's going to lead to a lot of frustrated customers. Yeah. I mean, just the very idea of data caps themselves in, in this age seems absurd. You know, there's only so much data that any human being can consume, Uh yeah, you call it data, call it information that you can consume in a day anyway. I mean, my my teenagers are trying very hard to to prove that wrong. 
but you're I, right. I hear you. I hear you. I mean, it, their, their appetite for streamed media seems absolutely limitless. But having said that, even if they were consuming at the maximum possible extent, then it's very easy to check to see if there are robots operating and to be able to filter those out. Mm. And that maximum is pretty reasonable. So just the idea of kind of rationing that data just reminds me of um, the Arnold Schwarzenegger version of Total Recall, where the air was being rationed. Mm -hmm. There's absolutely (laughs) no reason for it other than um, monopoly. And so I think that's the situation you'll end up with. You'll have uh, some people who suffer, and I'm talking about organizations that suffer. And as a result, there will be consolidation. Uh, The consolidation will result in monopoly. The monopoly will result in poorer service, and you'll have disgruntled customers. And then eventually regulation will step in and break a huge monopoly up, and we'll be back to where we started again, we hope. We're ending the year kind of on a sad I know, note. It's, it's, I, I was just imagining the, um, like a visitor from the past listening to this as an episode of like, what's life like in 2018 and being like, woo, it's a grim dystopia out there in 2018. I mean, even two years ago, you know? Just... Yeah, I mean, although I will say what's going to be streaming on these streaming services that are zero rated and net neutrality controlled is probably the best uh, time to watch uh, TV shows of our, you know, of history. Yay! Yeah. Everything else? Yeah. Hmm, not so much, but it's peak TV. <laughs> Hooray! And it's, 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 it's fascinating because, you know, not only do we have kind of this thing about, like, can I get... Um, Warner Brothers shows for free when I try to stream on my, you know, device on AT&T, but there's also, it also feeds into kind of the, the TV, current state of TV conversation at large too. Like, where can I get Game of Thrones or The Good Place or Star Trek Discovery? Um, how many services do I have to be subscribed to? Because that's also going to influence how those things go. Like, if I can pay the same phone bill or similar phone bill on AT&T versus Verizon and I get... Um, you know, whatever shows, because I think people think in terms of shows rather than in the older, like networking model, like what shows can I watch? Then maybe I'm switching to AT&T. I'm not getting the Hulu subscription. I'm not paying for CBS All Access. I'm not doing, you know, whatever. And so I think that that those kinds of relationships are um, interesting to think about. And I do think it will, again, it will have an impact on those. I just... Media and tech and the internet and our lives are so, so intertangled. Like, there's not a lot of separation anymore. I've been thinking about this a lot lately with, with these kinds of conversations that we have. You know, a hundred years ago, 200 years ago, maybe you had a, a, a farm, you know, you, you were moving west, young man, and you had a farm and you were really, um, isolated and could break off. And 200 years later, that is nigh unto impossible to do. We are um, always connected in some way, and these media companies know about it. It's it's um, it's just another way to commodify our lives. Really, I think um, I don't know. It's all really we live in a really weird time. 
we live in a really weird time. It is it is a strange time. I do I do think that this is one of those examples once again where the companies that are doing this are doing this because it's not you know it's a good business move to do this and it wouldn't be a good business move to do this if net neutrality was real if zero rating uh, your own content wasn't allowed like if there were regulations about being a fair uh internet provider then it would be less of an issue uh that if at&t uh, had its also owns a you know streaming service that it'd be like all oh, right well we're gonna p- compete on the merits but uh you know we are in a situation where uh, there's a lot of uh, battling about this, and the state of California is trying to do some uh, some net neutrality stuff, which we'll see how that plays out in the courts. But it is uh, it, it's frustrating to to see all of this at a time when I think the the move of television to uh, streaming is is potentially quite exciting, and it opens up a lot of possibilities. But also, there's a lot of money being spent because I think there's a general feeling that this is a game of musical chairs, and that at some point, you know, they'll start taking the chairs away, and there are only going to be whatever four five six streaming services that really succeed and all of these companies with billions and billions of dollars to spend want to be one of those so they're you know they're spending the money now and if you own your own cell phone network and can put put together a bundle right as an at&t customer do i get a deal will i get a special deal on the warner uh streaming service maybe i don't know i don't know it's not great for content creators though is it i mean no. you're going to want to go on the platforms that provide the widest possible reach. And if you don't know what they are, or you know that you're going to be able to go on certain platforms, but experience is going to be hobbled somewhat, that's going to be really frustrating. What if somebody's watching your show and they run out of data? Right. Or what? Yeah, nobody wants that. Or I mean, this is already happening. With um, there are channels that are tied to providers for a large part. So so AT and T. Speaking of them, they actually have a, a a channel called the Audience Channel, which started on Directv, and now you can also get it on AT and T Uverse. But that is a uh, a TV channel that people make shows for it that are actually pretty well regarded. Some of them and other people, if you're not on the right provider, you basically can't get it. And so it's like, well, do you want to change to a satellite TV? just to get this tv show well that seems unlikely but so that frustrates the consumer who wants to see that show they heard about that frustrates the creators because nobody can see their show and we do live in an era uh somebody did the calculation i think fx networks did the calculation they do every year that in 2018 there were almost 500 original scripted english language programs uh created and that is a record it's we didn't quite hit 500 so there's always next year but that's where we are and if you listen to some of these creators i'm i'm sure they're very grateful that they have the ability to work in television let's say uh talking about tv streaming uh and do their job and create their shows that's all great but there is this underlying feeling as well that um you know, is anybody going to be able to see it? Because there's so much of it. And then there are also often these barriers that are put up. And, you know, people get really angry when, uh, you know, they've got a Netflix subscription, but this show is on CBS All Access, or it's on Amazon, or it's on Acorn, or some other streaming service uh, that isn't one that they pay for. Uh, People get uh, really grumpy about that. And so it's not great for consumers. It's not great for creators. I'll tell you what it's good for. Pirates. It, I mean, mm-hmm. music became music became a lot more acceptable to buy and to stream once it became ubiquitous because of the reduction in friction to access that music. Totally. I mean, Apple were fantastic in that regard. They made it so easy to buy a tune that they, 
people just didn't care. They just bought stuff left, right and centre. And that's happened across the board. And Netflix has done the same for streaming video. And that has helped to reduce piracy significantly. Though, of course, it still exists. But before, the only way you got this stuff digitally was through piracy. Now, if you're going to reduce the convenience and people want to watch something, they'll find a way. Yeah, that's, that's you know, yeah. the, the positive way that the streaming world works out is that everything's available and you have to pay for it, but everything's available. The negative is when you start getting exclusive content exclusives, right? Where it's like, this is, this is not available to you because you're not on the right ISP. You're not on the right, right. cell phone provider. That's, that's not, that's not great. Um, I no. want to bring up another uh, bit of media news, by the way. Uh, Verizon, speaking of cell phone companies who own media companies, because, you know, that's where we are. Uh, they have officially written down the $4.6 billion that's connected to Oath, which used to be most of Yahoo, uh, built and also AOL and some other stuff that they, they stuck together <laughs> to this <laughs> wad. And now they've written down $4.6 billion. The new CEO of Verizon is focused on 5G and networky things. Seems a little less interested in building a media media empire than his predecessor was it's been reported that 10 percent of oaths or uh, whatever it is now verizon media group workforce will be cut uh, across a wide number of media properties but oath is gone now as a as a name uh, it's it's now in the 2018 here's a positive thing about 2018 oath and trunk are both history <laughs> oh, uh, trunk so r.i.p to trunk and r.i.p to oath verizon media group joins warner media in our new consolidated media empire but this is a this is pretty amazing because this is verizon saying okay we'll buy yahoo and now the new ceo of verizon sort of like Meh. oh well <laughs> take a take a take our lumps take our 4.6 billion dollars in lumps so yeah yeah that's that mm. you know i just spent three months uh clicking through uh gdpr agreements for <laughs> Sites that I previously thought were one thing, but actually turned out to be Oath. I thought, uh-huh. what is Oath? <laughs> <laughs> I, I hadn't even figured what Oath was until you mentioned it, actually. <laughs> but I just got hundreds of these requests to, yeah, please, please authorize us to do what we always did before anyway. But now we only need you to click one button to, to do the same again. Um, so yeah, very forgettable name. Mm. I had absolutely no idea what it was connected to, but apparently it's connected to just about everyone. Yeah, it's Yahoo yeah. and AOL, and yeah, and the blogs that they own, and all of that stuff is kind of wrapped in. There's still like legitimate business in there, but it is funny that the remnants of Yahoo are now a totally different company that is just the holding company for Yahoo's investments in like Alibaba and uh, a few other. Uh, media companies of its own and then all the media content just got handed to verizon Mm. tronk is gone though we'll we'll miss making fun of tronk we won't miss tronk we'll just miss making fun of it (laughs) um another case where an executive did did uh, trunk get truncated uh trunk got trunk truncated and trunk hated too um another example i think where there's like executives who are like i love this crazy name and then the new executives come in and go "Mm -mm, no mm, yeah what what were you thinking that's not that's not gonna happen uh now uh, let's before we uh before we move on i want to tell you about the story you might have missed something that may have flown in under your radar steven stuck this in here and it is this time to check in on magic leap Woo! 
they're still doing their thing, selling VR headsets to what we assume are dozens of people. And if you're in that group, <laughs> good news, the Magic Leap 1 can now be fitted with prescription lenses. They run 249. They are anti-reflective and fully compatible with the system's eye-tracking features, and lenses can be ordered via Frames Direct. So if you're uh, nearsighted or farsighted and want to do some Magic Leap VR, put on those glasses. I have never... Shahid, have you used a Magic Leap? No, but I have done a lot of looking into it. It looks intriguing. I was very much a skeptic to begin with, but I think it's the right way to tackle AR. You need glasses. You just don't need the glasses to be like 25,000 kilos or whatever the headsets currently are. And I'm not talking about, I'm not having a pop at Magic Leap here. Everybody's like that right now. All of the headsets are too big. VR, AR, doesn't matter. But for AR to work, in my opinion, it can't be like an Apple iOS device because just holding the thing up all the time, it's just too tiresome. Correct. Mm. Yeah. Whereas these things, you're holding this thing on your head, you're, you're seeing an AR display, it's six degrees of freedom, the controller is six degrees of freedom, and it's, yes, it's the first generation. And I think it's only going to get better. And there is an awful lot that can be done with it. When the glasses become, dare I say it, Apple-like, then I think there'll be much more of a take-up. And and I say Apple because I'm sure their their design skills will probably um, outrank Google's. Uh, and I think Google had an issue of timing with Glass, right? I think if Google Glass came out now in, in an age where you know that absolutely everybody can see everything you're ever doing online, especially your worst haters, they see it before you do, actually, um, then, then people are going to be less freaked out by this kind of thing. Uh, especially if they look really, really cool and, you know, you're, you're not obviously taking photos and, and videos of everything. And then there needs to be some kind of light on the front of it to show that you're recording, right? So in, in that kind of age, these things are going to become more acceptable. But the main thing is they're more usable. The six degrees of freedom means that wherever you go, you're going to get a great experience. The hardware will improve, memory will increase. So the amount of area that the device will be able to map and retain will increase. A lot of it will become networked so that more and more of the world will become polygon meshed and stored on a server. Never mind Google Earth being able to see huge chunks of land. This thing will be able to map, map out chunks of land in 10 years' time uh, to the precision of a pixel. However small you want to make that pixel is entirely up to the hardware, I guess. And they recently did a, a grant. Uh, they, they did a... They, they had this enormous fund. I think it was, what, eight figures? Pretty large fund where they were funding developers or offering to fund developers up to 500k US to create a project for Magic Leap. And they weren't asking for IP rights. They weren't asking for exclusivity, which I thought was a pretty bold move. In fact, in the application, you don't even have to provide a demo. Uh, and they've had a massive response to that, really massive. So, so that was smart. Um, and the other thing I guess I should mention is that their website is really nice and that matters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, we'll see how it goes. As a glasses wearer, I just uh, I have always felt like a lot of the AR stuff is like, well, dealing with people's corrections for vision is too complicated for us. So we're just going to sell this to people with 2020 vision. I'm like, ah, yeah. hello. 
don't do that. So at least uh, <laughs> you can get uh, prescription lenses now. And I, I agree, this will be uh, it's it, Apple. Apple will get into this, and that'll still be a product that's too early, but it'll be on the verge of being on time. And then, well, it's it's early days. We'll get there. Um, I I do agree. Nobody wants to wear like a bike helmet on their head in order to get VR or AR. It's not that fun. Um, let's uh, take a break. I'm not reading an ad now, but I am going to give you a message, dear listener. Um, our next episode will be released on January 1st. It will be a special stories of the year episode. We're going to bring back a couple of our favorite panelists. You know who they are. And I'm not going to even say you can guess if you've been listening to this show. And we're going to break down the stories of the year. And we would like your suggestions for stories of the year. I set up a Google form. Uh, the link is in our show notes. Or if you w- want to do it this way, I will tell you where to go now, which is tinyurl.com slash download stories 2018. And that will take you there too. And uh, yeah, the, get, suggest what you think the stories of the year are weird stories, good stories, bad stories, topics that you want us to cover. And we will look through that list and it will help guide us into our discussion for our next episode, which will be in uh, 12 days, a little, little more than a week uh, for January 1st. And then we'll be back the week of CES, the following week on our regular Thursday schedule. So taking basically, we're taking a week off, but we are slotting in a very special episode for New Year's Day. So check that out and uh, give us your suggestions, tinyurl.com slash download stories 2018. Okay, our last official topic is uh, sort of the, the Apple grab bag for another week, because again, not a lot of product announcements this late in the holiday season, and so instead we get little bits here and there, but there were a couple of bits of Apple news that I thought were interesting. Apple Music appeared on the Amazon Echo this week, just in time for me to have stopped playing music on my Echo because I bought a HomePod, <laughs> but uh, I do wonder uh, what this means both for the HomePod, because would I have bought a HomePod if... I was deep into the Amazon Echo stuff as I was, and uh, as an Apple Music subscriber, I could just buy a nicer Amazon Echo and get the music on there. I don't know. Uh, probably would have, but I, I, I really don't know. And also what Apple is doing with its services. This is a case where Apple Music is on Mac and PC. It's on Android. Uh, it's on iOS, obviously. It's on HomePod, and now it's also on Sonos Systems and on the Amazon Echo. So, uh, you know, not necessarily what people might have predicted from Apple when it launched Apple Music a couple of years ago. Um, so what do you guys think about this uh, issue? Aline, do you have any thoughts about Apple uh, kind of giving a, I'm not going to say giving Amazon a hug, but like pr- allowing Amazon to be in its presence? Mm, I think it's smart, honestly. Um, Echo devices are so economically priced now um, uh-huh. that it's it's just an easier bet for a lot of people. Um, the HomePod price point is not cheap and that it's just not something many people can can that's wrong. It's not something that everybody can get, but a lot of people can afford an echo device or hook it up to a speaker or whatever and it's great. Um, sound quality isn't as good, but you know, who cares? I mean, I know people care, but so I think that this is smart and it's kind of a gateway for Apple Music because if Apple, Apple's competitors in this are Spotify and, um, the other services I can't think of, Amazon Music, that people get with their Prime subscriptions. They need to be where the people are. This isn't, 
this isn't Apple coming out with another like iPhone, you know, it's something that they're doing in an established pace place space. My word, it's something they're doing in an established space and they need to meet people where they are. And then maybe that brings people into the AirPod HomePod uh, realm like, oh, this the service is pretty nice. Oh, maybe it integrates better with Siri. Maybe I should get a HomePod. And when you hear the HomePod, it's like, yeah, this is this is substantially better than the Echo. How about I go with that? Um, so I think it's a good business move, honestly. It's a variation on the discussion we've had earlier in the show, I think. You have a number of incumbents in the music streaming space, all jockeying for position. The leader is, my guess is Spotify, but we have tons of other services as well, and uh, many of them are available on the Echo device. And then you have, I guess, an imperative from all of these streaming content providers who've aggregated an absolute ton of music, tens of millions of songs, to be able to use that license on as many devices as possible. Now, Apple already has an incredibly powerful outlet. It started off with the iPod, and now, of course, it's the iPhone. That's going to be its primary outlet for its subscription content. But why not reach out to the other manufacturers in the same way that I'm sure the other manufacturers with their own streaming services would like to reach out because there's google as well of course there's if you look at more specialized services there's tidal and they're going to appear on just about every device so where are we going to end up we're going to have loads of devices with loads of services and that's the way everyone would like it so where's the differentiation going to come from it's going to come on really tiny things there's going to be some element of brand loyalty I think Aline's absolutely spot on with her point that nobody really cares. And the mass market doesn't really care about the quality of the speaker as long as it's good enough. What's it got to do? It's got to fill a room with sound, right? And for 95, maybe 99% of all customers, that's absolutely fine. As long as it sounds okay, it doesn't have to be a Sonos. An Echo is fine. HomePod is fine. Nobody really cares about the fine details. There's going to be some brand loyalty. There's going to be some... Um, investment already. In other words, you're already a subscriber, you're already bought into the ecosystem, and then you just want to be able to use it on every device you've got. Then you've got the weirdos like me, right, who are into Apple in a big way, but don't subscribe to Apple Music. And I subscribe to Spotify. And previously, I subscribed to Tidal for a while. And I want to hear these on my Echo because I don't have a HomePod because I don't see the point. And people like me don't matter. The people who matter are the people who have an iPhone and their first device is Christmas is likely to be an Echo because, as Aline said, prices are really, really good, right? So how do Apple benefit? Apple benefit by having their brand present for that iPhone customer or another device that the iPhone customer has. How does Amazon benefit? Amazon makes Echo a more useful device for all those people out there who've got iPhones. Everybody wins. The point of differentiation is likely to be in the use of intelligent agents. So, for example, um, Alexa and Siri will be vying for ease of use. So perhaps it's the case that on an Echo, the native mapping of any music, the default is done through just asking for that track. And that will take you straight through to, say, Amazon Music if you're a Prime customer or Amazon Music Unlimited if you subscribe to that, 
Whereas on an iPhone, of course, Siri is going to primarily access the Apple Music stuff. That's really now your only point of differentiation. And the race now is on for making those AI agents, be it Google, be it Apple, be it Amazon, to, I guess, predict what you're going to like next and make that experience as as seamless and as enjoyable as possible. Yeah, I'm reminded of the early days of the iPod where uh, Apple finally agreed that the iPod maybe was not just an accessory for the Mac, but it could be a gateway to a a larger world. And, you know, Apple's going to, Apple Music has to compete, but, and the HomePod really is going to have to compete. But I feel like that's okay. I feel like that's what Apple should do is say the HomePod, you buy a HomePod, not because Apple Music's on it, but because it's a, you know, premium speaker product with engineered this and right, you tell the story and uh, people look at the price, which is probably $100 too high, and will make their decision and they can compete on features and all of that rather than having the uh, the the exclusivity or semi-exclusivity of the uh, service propping it up. And at the same time, you know, Apple Music, I think this leads the way to the TV service that they're going to do next year, which talking about our last conversation about being frustrated that uh, content that you want is not available to you. I think it's much more likely now that Apple will make uh, its TV service available on other platforms and not just on Apple's platforms as well for these same reasons. They want to grow revenue. They want people to be like, oh, I really like that Apple stuff. Maybe I'll buy an Apple TV next time. Maybe I'll buy an iPhone next time. And, you know, better to... I like to see Apple competing on these terms instead of the other way they could do it, which is just saying, well, we'll we'll do the minimal effort and put it mm-hmm. inside our ecosystem. And then everybody's just going to be stuck with, with it if they want to be in our ecosystem. Because that's lazy and um, I think a bad a bad look and a bad sign for Apple's future if they did that. So I'm, I'm encouraged by the fact that they're actually willing to compete on both on the hardware side and on the services side. Yeah. And the only thing that happened, well, hopefully the thing, the results is everybody gets better, right? Competition is good for consumers because we want the best things, the most innovative things. And this is how it happens because they need that incentive to continue iterating and making things better for everybody. Well, we're almost at the end. I did say earlier that as we move through our grim dystopia, um, we would need more puppies. So we we have more puppies. So first, I have a fussy puppy update from listener Peter, who sent in this story about Brittany Holly, who uses a wheelchair and has chronic pain, but has managed to get through college and grad school with the help of her service dog, Griffin. That's why the board of trustees from Clarkson University has decided to grant Griffin, the dog, an honorary degree for his extraordinary effort, steadfast commitment, and diligent dedication to the well-being and student success of Brittany. Uh, Brittany's master's degree is in occupational therapy and she says griffin is actually helpful in her therapy sessions and very popular with her patients which is pretty cool Um, but here's your bonus because we went extra grim dark this week which is that uh panelist aline hello hello (laughs) sent in this story about a service called embark uh, you might be able to work it out just from the name. It's been launched in Australia. Uh, you go to the airport. You're a little nervous. You're a little stressed. You may not like flying. You don't like the going through security. And are you going to make your flight and all that? And Embark provides puppies at the airport <laughs> so that you can pet a puppy and be delighted and calm down a little bit and feel a little bit better. And, you know, if I could do if I could release puppies in this podcast, I would do it. But I can't. I can only tell stories about puppies. So this is the best I can do. But thank you, Aline, for uh, sending that in. We did need the second helping of Fuzzy Puppies today. Yeah. 
Yeah, that was actually my husband, Justin. He was like, hey, did you know the story? And I was like, yes, huh? let's 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 do a fuzzy puppy. Well, on thank you, panelists, husband, Justin, <laughs> for that. And uh, once again, just a reminder to everybody out there, uh, send in your thoughts about the stories of the year, uh, tinyurl.com slash download stories 2018 or go in the show notes and there'll be a link there. Uh, but we are at the end. Shahid, where can people find you and the stuff that you do? Uh, usually the best place to find me is Twitter at Shahid Kamal. Excellent. And Aline, where can people find the stuff that you do? Oh, everywhere. Um, I'm on Relay FM. Uh, that's Relay FM slash originality. Uh, this is my podcast. My business is App Launch Map, where I help independent iOS and Mac developers with the non code side of launching their app. And I do have a book coming out someday, someday to help them through launches. Is at AppLaunchMap.com. Uh, of course, co executive director of App Camp for Girls is AppCamp, the numeral for girls.com. And you can just find me on Twitter talking about shipping shenanigans or whatever at uh, Adeline on Twitter. All right. And thanks to Stephen Hackett, who's not here for putting together the show. And thanks to everybody out there for listening. We will be back on the 1st of January 2019 when the grim dystopia of 2018 will be passed. But then we'll talk about it because it'll be the stories of the year. But until then, we will keep watching the headlines and turning the pages on the calendar so you don't have to. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.